All right. Well, I am so grateful to be with y'all tonight. And uh, for the good word that I'm confident that the Lord has for us. So we will be in Amos chapter 9 in the church's Bible on page 1064. And this will be our last teaching from Amos. Uh, the, this is the last passage in chapter 9 and Amos's conclusion to, I suppose, with the Lord's prophecy and promise. And it's, it's difficult for me to, to say what aspect of tonight's passage is so significant. We're going to receive a glimpse of the fresh covenant that Jesus will bring when he comes to earth, or when he came to earth. We are going to understand the covenant that he would come to bring to Israel and to the Gentiles. There are four I will statements that Jesus gives of the things that he will do. And in the last verses, God gives hope that a remnant would endure the sifting of captivity and that he would bless them. These are extraordinary things. Most Bibles would have a, a subheading that says something like, Israel will be restored. And that's an understatement. That is an understatement for God's plan of salvation for his people. So let's read together chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. On that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. So the Lord who does this thing, excuse me, says the Lord who does this thing. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine and the hills shall flow with that. It will, I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their land, and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. This is a pretty simple ending, and it almost seems too easy, because last week we, we read the first part of Amos chapter 9, when the Lord says, Surely I will command and sift the house of Israel among all nations as grain is sifted in a sieve, yet not the smallest grain will fall to the ground. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say the calamity shall not overtake nor confront us. So perhaps the strongest word of judgment that Amos gives to Israel and he follows this immediately with this incredible picture of salvation and restoration. But we've got to remember that this word we're re reading tonight is for the remnant who have endured captivity. The remnant who have endured God's judgment and who the Lord 
will have mercy on. This is not a popular message in the church today. That there is a remnant among those who are called my people or God's people or God's church or God's followers. A remnant who will endure the sifting. But that is what Amos says. That is what Jesus says. That is what the apostles and the disciples and the writers of the New Testament say. That the road is narrow that leads to salvation. So there's a lot that's going on, even though these are, these are just uh, five, five short verses. First it says, On that day I will rise, raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. So this phrase, day of the Lord, is used throughout the prophets. Let's, let's look back for a second at, at chapter 5, verse 8 in Amos. Chapter 5, verse 8. Actually, verse 18, I'm sorry. In verse 18, Amos is, is, is giving this judgment to Israel, and he says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. So the day of the Lord, it means a lot of things. It means that the Lord will return one day. And that is a good thing for those who are in Christ Jesus, who are in right standing with the Lord. But those who are not in right standing, it will be a, a day of judgment and a day of doom. So this is the day of the Lord that Amos has been talking about. But now in, verse, in chapter 9, verse 11, he says, On that day, the day when referring to the Lord is always this same thing. And he says, On that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David which has fallen down. So Amos tells us this day that was meant not for good for them before, when they would be running from a lion and find a bear, this day now for God's people will be when he raises up the fallen shelter of David. Which is an interesting statement because you remember that Amos is prophesying to Israel, the divided from Judah Israel. The city of David was Jerusalem, which is in the nation of Judah. He is prophesying to Israel who has been separated. So Israel, as he is prophesying to them, are the people that have been separated from the promises of David, from the lineage of David. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 16 in the church's Bible on page 801, Isaiah chapter 16. Amos is prophesying to Israel about the re-establishment of David's tabernacle, with, which is through Jesus. And Isaiah is going to say this even more clearly for us. Look with me in verse 5 of chapter 16. Isaiah says, In mercy the throne will be established, and one who will sit on it in truth, in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking justice and hastening 
righteousness. This is so important because we often read of Jesus coming through the lineage of David and we think, okay, that's wonderful. He is from the kingship of David, one after the Lord's own heart. But there is this prophecy about the one who will come through the lineage of David that is among all the prophets and what he will do. And it's important that we see Jesus as none other than this one. Not just who will come to be a great king and who will set Israel free from the physical oppression of the Romans and others, but one who will do these things. In mercy, the throne will be established, and one who will sit on it in truth. In the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking justice and hastening righteousness. Physically, Amos expresses that the tabernacle... Oh, turn back with me, I'm sorry. Let's go back to Amos, go back to Amos 9. So physically, Amos expresses that the tabernacle of David would be repaired and rebuilt. Look in verse 11, my translation uses the word damages. It says the tabernacle of David which has fallen down and repair its damages. Some translations you may have say breaches or holes. These damages imagine the walls of the tabernacle of David, the walls that surround this dwelling place for the Lord. You remember that we we read several weeks ago how the Lord said when he judged Israel, he was going to take them out through the breaches in the wall, that they would be yanked through the holes, the weaknesses that surrounded God's holy place, that they would be yanked through these holes, these sinful places, so to speak, these places that were weak and brittle and allowed sin to come in, allowed the enemy to have authority, and they would be yanked through them with nose rings like cattle. And the Lord is saying now that he is physically going to rebuild the temple as in the days of old. Not just a beautiful place, or else he would have said Solomon's temple. He says David's tabernacle, right? A place that was dedicated by a man who was after his own heart. A place where sin was being worked to be kept outside of the city and outside from the people of God. Amos is building on the theme that weakness in Israel's protection of city walls would be rebuilt and restored. Next, we read in verse 12, it says that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. So not only is this tabernacle of David going to be rebuilt, which is in line with what the prophets share about this one coming who would be the Messiah. Now we read that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by the name of the Lord. Turn with me over to Acts chapter 15. If you're in the church's Bible, it'll be on page 1273. Acts chapter 15. So you'll remember that that in Acts chapter 15 is this 
Jerusalem council that is gathered together to talk about the issue of circumcision among the Jews and among the Gentiles and among different groups who have varying opinions. Let's read together beginning in verse 12 and we'll read through verses 17. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. After they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. So this is familiar because this is a quote that that James is making from Amos. He He interrupts what Paul and Barnabas are saying that they have seen the Lord do among the Gentiles to say, brothers and sisters, listen up. What we are hearing about from Paul among the Gentiles is the fulfillment of prophecy in Amos. We know that one would come and do great things, the promised one, the great one, the redeeming one, the Messiah, and he wouldn't just do it among the Jews like some of you are saying. He would do these works among the Gentiles that all would know that there is a Savior in Israel. So he quotes from Amos. Now, a curious phrase that he he mentions here. If you look in verse 16, it says that, uh, excuse me, the the first part of verse 17, James is quoting, and I should say that when, when James is quoting scripture here, he is quoting from what is called the Septuagint which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament from Hebrew. So, of course, when translations happen, there are slight differences that um, cannot be said verbatim from one language to another, but it is a sense for sense of what is being said. So James is quoting from the Septuagint, and he says in verse 17, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name. Now flip back over to Amos chapter 9. And we'll read again what Amos says that James is quoting. That they may possess the remnant of Edom and the Gentiles who are called by my name. So the second half of what he's saying is the exact same. The Gentiles who are called by my name. It's the first part that is a little different here in Amos from what we read James saying. So James says, mankind. Amos says, Edom. Everybody see that? Everybody notice that? Everybody think that that's two different words there, mankind and Edom? Edom is a nation, mankind is all humanity. So mankind comes from a word we know, comes from a name we know. It comes from Adam. In the beginning, God created Adam. And the word Adam um, in, in Greek is actually without vowels, excuse me, in Hebrew is without vowels. 
So we would just read it as a D and an M. Scribes would know exactly what that word meant in every single situation. Edom, the word also comes from Hebrew, is spelled with the two same consonants, consonants D and M, Adam and Edom. These words were written without vowels, and so they would look very similar. So here's what I know, is that translators have differing opinions on how this happened, that James is reading from the Septuagint, and he, you know, he's reading this translation, and it's easy to read this as Adam, which would mean mankind, and we would read from Amos, and we would see Edom. And so the reason I want to clear this up is because I love that scripture, in any places that um, critics find what they believe as fault, even places which can be distinguished in a translation, it does not change the meaning. In fact, I believe we'll see that it makes what God is saying here even stronger. So we studied about Edom several weeks ago. Israel and Edom are the nations from the twin sons of Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Esau. Edom is a nation that is constantly at conflict with Israel throughout the Old Testament. You'll remember that Esau sold the birthright to Israel. He sold it to Jacob for some stew when he was hungry. Debra's taught on this understanding that Esau was the one who went after the things of the flesh, and Jacob, Israel, was the one who went after the things of the spirit. So from this point on, these brothers, Jacob and Esau, Israel and Edom, would be at conflict, and their people remain at conflict. So I believe what we read here is a remarkable promise of what the Lord is offering. That those of Esau, Jacob's estranged brother, might come into the fold of God's promise. Grafted in. So it doesn't matter whether we read Amos' words and read Edom or we read James's understandings and we read mankind or humanity, the understanding is the same. Then Amos says, then James says after that, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. See, I think this is revealing a, a, a first truth and a second truth. That those who are opposed to God's people, that those who are opposed to God's ways are going to have an opportunity to come in. And that those of the world who don't even know that they're opposed to God's ways are going to have an opportunity to come in. It's so important what Amos is saying. He's not just saying one group or the other. And when we miss that, when we read that Jesus came to, to save these people or those people, we misunderstand the heart of the Father. See, God had a plan, and his plan is being fulfilled in Jesus that all may know that those who are opposed to God and those who don't know they're opposed to God may know that it's he and he only who brings salvation. Says the Lord who does these things or this thing. I love what Amos says next. 
Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. Now these days that we all long for, we sing the song, the days of Elijah, and I I don't even know that we know what that means. The days of Elijah, we dance and we get excited and we think, that means God's coming back, right? That means everything's going to be made right. Things can't be made right until this happens. And when this happens, things can be made right. And when things are being made right, there are going to be incredible blessings. Amos says, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed, the mountain shall drip with sweet wine and the hills shall flow with it. I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. So, There's all these similar points that are are, are expressing a common theme that there is a time coming when the Lord will make things right, when there will be plenty and restoration, when there will be an abundance of grain and grapes which will grow faster than they can be harvested. I don't really understand these things because I'm not a farmer exactly, but, but I think that The phrase, the plowman will overtake the reaper, is a promise that indicates a time when there is a fullness of vines, of branches, of fruit, and crops so abundant that the soil is so fertile that they won't be able to wait until next year to plant the crop. These things are going to happen so fast. So when we look around and we wonder why is there calamity and chaos and why isn't things going the way I want it, it's because this is not happening. When this happens, when the Lord is moving, when the plowman is overtaking the reaper, we will know it. We will see it and we will embrace God's ways. They will have to plow right behind the reaper's. Next, it says that the mountains will drip with sweet wine. Now, this is almost comical. We may read this and go, oh, this is wonderful. A vineyard planted on a mountain. No one plants a vineyard on a mountain. Mountains are rocky. They are rough. They are not good soil. Jesus says even the mountains will have vineyards that will be flowing with sweet wine. This is a miracle. When God is moving in such a way, we will see this and we will know it. It will be unlike anything we've ever seen. We won't be able to explain it. Then, then the Lord says, I will bring back the captives of my people. As if it's not enough for all these things to happen, God is going to bring back the captives of his people. He's going to bring them from Babylon. He's going to bring them from Assyria. He's going to bring them from Russia and Poland and Ukraine. He's going to do the things that he's going to do, and he's going to restore those who have been taken out of the promised land. They will rebuild their ruined cities and live in them again. It goes on to say that they will build vineyards and gardens and they'll make them and plant them and they'll enjoy them for themselves. And this is just kind of amazing because they're not going to need to import them from other nations. They're not going to have to go to Babylon or Lebanon or the surrounding nations for wine, for gardens, for food. The Lord is going to harvest them among his land that he's restored them to. And who are these days for? Because many quote the prophets, they quote Jeremiah and say, for I know the plans that I have for you, a plan for a hope and a future. And they they quote things like this from Amos and they say, oh, this is great. God's going to do awesome things. He's got a plan and a future. He does for the remnant. He does for those who have been sifted. 
for those who have been weighed and measured, those who have not been found wanting or lacking, but those who have been found trusting in him. Those that we read about in 8 and 9, those that it says, Behold, the eyes of the Lord are on the sinful kingdom. He will destroy it from the face of the earth, yet not utterly the house of Jacob. These, these and the remnant, he has these blessings for. I was, I was reading these verses again and again, and, 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 and you know, the plowman overtaking the reaper and the mountains dripping with wine and all of these things might seem very distant for us who aren't farmers or agrarian or living in a place like Israel. And so I was thinking what these verses might sound like for us or for me. I wrote down kind of an understanding from these verses. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the Holy Spirit will overcome the flesh of my people. And the word of the Lord, their thoughts and utterances. When the fruit of the Spirit is ripe for the picking, and love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control abound. I will bring my people back, the captives of my people Israel. They shall build new lives without their old spirits. They shall plant the word in good soil and keep it. They shall also make lamps to remain in the light. I will preserve them and their salvation. And no longer will they be abducted from the freedom I have given them, says the Lord. This is what the Lord longs for his people. So Amos goes on and it says, Finally, I will plant them in their land, and no longer shall they be pulled up. No longer will they be removed from the land, just like the planting and reaping that Amos has just talked about. God will plant them again in their land which he has given them, never again to be pulled up. This is my favorite verse in all of Amos. I didn't know it until this morning that it was my favorite verse. All week long, I have been pressing into this idea of being pulled up or no longer being pulled up. And, and I could see it and I thought, this is so great, this is so rich, but I know that there's more to it. I thought, this sounds great, it makes good sense, right? They're talking about the land, the inheritance, the picture of what salvation means. They have left the land. They will be leaving the land. They are being plucked out of their salvation, so to speak. So if they're planted again and not pulled up, then the Lord speaks of a future when his people are firm in their salvation, not being pulled out. That sounds great. So I started to, to study this word just this morning. Just how it would be that the Lord would have me marinating on this all week and this morning to give me more understanding. This word that, that we read in verse 15 that says no longer pulled up. Some of your translations may say to be uprooted, to be taken away. This is the Hebrew word natash. It means to tear away, to destroy, to forsake, to pluck out to pull out, to root out, to uproot utterly. It's a devastating word. Interestingly enough, this word is, is only used, is used a few times. 
It is used exclusively by the prophets, by Micah, by Daniel, by Ezekiel, by Jeremiah, and by Amos. And aside from those uses, only four other times that I am certain influence the prophetic use of this word. Turn with me. We're going to look in three places to understand this. In Deuteronomy chapter 29. Deuteronomy chapter 29 on page 237. So we're in Deuteronomy, we're in the second giving of the law, we're in a 30-something a long book of Amos pleading with Israel before they go into the promised land, saying again and again and again, you can choose blessing or you can choose curses, you can choose the Lord's way or you can choose death. Moses here reminds the people of all God has done for them and the curses written about those who rebel against him. We'll read verses 24 through 29. Moses says all nations would say why has the Lord done this to the land what does the heat of this great anger mean the people would say because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord the God of their fathers which he made with them when he brought them out of Egypt when they went and served other gods and worshipped them gods that they did not know and that he had not given to them Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against this land to bring on it every curse that is written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from the land in anger and wrath and in great indignation and cast them into another land as it is this day. These things, the the secret, these things, excuse me, the secret things belong to the Lord our God and those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words in this law. So it says in verse 28, and the Lord uprooted them. This is a a promise. This is a warning that Moses has given. This hasn't happened yet. Moses is talking about what would happen to God's people if they refused his ways, if they worshipped other gods, if they followed in their sin and practiced it. The Lord would uproot them from the land. This is the first time this word's used. Turn next with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. It'll be on page 500. 2 Chronicles chapter 7. We'll read over here in 2 Chronicles how the Lord appears to Solomon and gives him some very important information. Let's read verses 12 through 20. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, and if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will give, excuse me, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place. For now I have chosen and sanctified this house, that my name may be there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. As for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked, and do according to all that I have commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom 
as I have covenanted with David your father, saying, You shall not fail to have a man as ruler in Israel. But if you turn away and forsake my statutes and commandments which I have set before you and go serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot them from my land which I have given them. And this house which I have sanctified for my name I will cast out of my sight and will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. So we go from a general use of this uprooting that the Lord tells Moses to warn all of Israel to a specific one that the Lord gives to Solomon. Next, turn with me to 1 Kings 14. So we're actually going to go backwards, but we're going to go to one of Solomon's descendants. 1 Kings 14. Here in 1 Kings 14, there is a judgment that the Lord is giving against Jeroboam and Israel. Jeroboam was the first king of the divided Israel. Jeroboam is Solomon's offspring. So the Lord gives this word of uprooting to Solomon, and now he will give it to his son Jeroboam through the prophet Ahijah. So read with me in chapter 14, verse 7 through 15. Go, tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you ruler over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, and yet you have not been as my servant David who kept my commandments and who followed me with all his heart to do only what was right in my eyes. But you have done more evil than all who were before you. For you have gone and made for yourself other gods and molded images to provoke me to anger and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I will bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam and I will cut off from Jeroboam every male in Israel, bond and free, and I will take away the remnant of the house of Jeroboam as one takes away refuse until it is all gone. The dog shall eat whoever belongs to Jeroboam and dies in the city, and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field, for the Lord has spoken. Arise, therefore, go to your own house. When your feet enter the city, the child shall die, and all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him, and he is the only one of Jeroboam who shall come to the grave, because in him there is found something good toward the Lord God of Israel and the house of Jeroboam. Moreover, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam. This is the day. What? Even now. For the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water. He will uproot Israel from this good land which he gave their fathers and will scatter them beyond the river because they have made their wooden images provoking the Lord to anger. So we started with Moses. The Lord prophesied to Solomon. Solomon and his children didn't listen to the Lord. Jeroboam doesn't listen to the Lord. And so the Lord's word comes to Jeroboam that the uprooting begins here. The only other use of this word is in the Psalms, and it's written by David. This word of uprooting is to Israel, but it is to the house of David even. 
So what we read in Amos happening is significant because the Lord is saying he will restore the house of David. He will restore the house of David so that King Jesus can come. He's not just putting Israel back in the capital city. He's not just allowing them to worship Torah and the temple. The Lord is bringing salvation to the entire world and these things must happen for salvation. Turn back with me to Amos chapter 9 again. The Lord says in verse 15, I will plant them in their land and no longer shall they be pulled up, uprooted from the land that I have given them. Israel didn't understand this promised land and all that God had for them. Any less, I think, than we understand salvation and what all the Lord has planned for us. This understanding in Amos of uprooting is not new. Rather, uprooting is a promise made by God as a judgment for sin. And, and this word was given to the descendants of David. So what we hear and what we read in Amos is God's good mercy through judgment, through sifting. It is the, the fulfillment of a promised warning to his people again and again and again. An equal promise like pulled out and uprooted is planted. The Lord says he will plant them in the land that he has given them that they will not be pulled up again. Those who endure the sifting will be planted and no longer pulled out. Our gracious God our, our gracious God that uproots for his purpose. It is God's grace and mercy that he uproots for his purpose. Our gracious God who uprooted Abraham to a land that he would show him. Our gracious God who uprooted the Hebrews from Egypt to a promised land. Our gracious God who uprooted the disciples from fishing for fish to fishing for followers. Our gracious God who uproots the unholy to root them in holiness. I pray tonight that we would be transformed by the word of the Lord through our friend Amos. That we would be found among this remnant. Those who are willingly pulled out and uprooted to remain in the covenant and salvation with Almighty God and His Son, Jesus. Amen.